Okay, before we get into this episode, I just wanted to give a little bit of a disclaimer to say that we are getting into the nitty-gritty of addictions and TCKs and where they might intersect sometimes. And we will be talking about addictions, how they come about, some of the things that people often get addictions to, and then also how to get out of addictions and where that process starts. So I wouldn't say that we're going to be explicit necessarily, but I do anticipate this being a little bit of a heavier conversation than what you may be accustomed to on TCK Care, the podcast. So just wanted to throw that out there at the beginning and let you do with that what you will. And again, everything we're doing on the podcast is to help people have meaningful conversations that lead to a higher quality of life. And so nothing we're going to be saying is going to be uh, with the intent to condemn, to judge, to point fingers, or to undermine anybody in any way. I'm just providing information so that you can take it and use it in a way that benefits you, benefits your life, and also helps other people grow and live the best life that they can. So with that, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to TCK Care, the podcast with your host, Stephen Black. And I'm here in the office of New Pattern Counseling with an expert. And I'm going to talk expertly about uh, the subject at hand today. So can you just tell us first, Reese, before we get into things, I got to ask you the million dollar TCK question, which is, where are you from? Where am I from? Uh, so I will disclaimer this with okay. saying... I, am, I don't identify as a TCK in the truest sense of the word, certainly not to the extent of the, the other guests you've had on the show. Uh, their stories are just so amazing, and they could never hold a candle to all of that they've been through. However, I do claim sort of the, the fringe of the experience for, for myself a little bit. So, so here's how it goes. Uh, when people ask, well, so when I'm traveling and people ask me where I'm from, the easiest thing to say is I'm from Portland, Oregon. Um, yeah. So technically... I'm from Fairview, Oregon, which is just east of Portland, north of Gresham, and south of the Columbia River. It's this tiny little ancient farm field pocket of suburbia. And um, before I lived in Portland, I lived in southern Oregon, in Medford. And before that, I lived in Arizona. And before that, I lived in uh, southern California. That was where I was born. So okay. uh, so my, my TCK experience or my, my filament of it. Um, it's all within America. I'm sure. solidly American, but yeah. I have lived in several states, um, like four years at a time, eight years at a time. Yeah. And all my moves were at just at those like formative junctures. Like we moved when I was four, we moved when I was in mm. middle school mm -hmm. I moved for college, mm -hmm. like all when like my identity is super in flux anyway. So, yeah. so I did feel like I kind of got disrupted a little bit that way. Well, and then you also have uh, multiple cl cultures pouring into your family, right? I do. My dad was off the boat, actually off the plane from the Philippines. Uh, he's yeah. He he immigrated, so I guess I'm technically a is that second generation immigrant? Yeah, sure. So the, there there is that, and my mom's American, Italian, Polish. Um, but by the time I came around, my dad had forgotten how to speak Tagalog, and he was thoroughly Americanized, and so yeah. Uh, so I grew up in this interracial family where my dad's very brown and my mom is very white yeah uh, with red hair um but it was it was functionally american yeah. so while i'm half right. asian i'm very much white passing right um my other my other claim to tck fame though is through being homeschooled okay from k-12 <laughs> which nice. um again it's not the same 
But from from the homeschooler perspective, I, I definitely had that experience of I just don't quite fit in. I, I don't catch all the social cues. Um, yes, right. I don't know the boy bands, the punk <laughs> bands, or any of it. Yeah, and I don't like sports, and so trying to make friends as an older person, as a middle schooler, as a high schooler, was very fraught because yeah. Again, I'd moved in middle school and they didn't, I was jumping into a culture where there was established relationships and I didn't know how to do social skills because I was homeschooled. And so there were difficulties. Yeah. Not to the same degree as people who have actually lived out of the country, I think. But, but anyway, I think similar enough that you are going to have sympathy for um, what we're talking about. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have asked you to be on the show. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. Great sympathy. Maybe I could be the TCK ally. There you go. Yes, absolutely. And we need some of those to talk to us sometimes to give us some wisdom on our own perspective. Because if all of us TCKs just talk to ourselves, then, you know, how much wisdom is there really going to be? So having outliers slash sometimes even outsiders can sometimes actually really be beneficial, I think. So I think this is going to be a good discussion, which brings me to my next question, um, which is I didn't actually ask you to come on the show because of uh, your cultural background, but more of your vocational um, niche, if you will. Reese, can you just tell us a little bit about what you do? Yes. So as you mentioned, you are in the Office of New Pattern Counseling. That is the counseling practice that I have set up here in the wilds of Gresham, Oregon. And I, so I am a, I'm a clinical counselor. I'm, a, in, I'm licensed in the state of Oregon as a licensed professional counselor, I'm also a certified alcohol and drug counselor level two, uh, with the the state of Oregon as well, mm-hmm. and with the addiction credentialing board. Uh, that's in Oregon. It's ACBO. I should know what that acronym stands for. <laughs> uh, I'm okay. also a certified sex addiction therapist candidate with mm. the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. So my practice is. Um, Geared, primarily geared around addictions, uh, dual diagnosis addictions where there's addiction and mental health challenges going on, uh, chemical addictions, so your classical alcohol, cannabis, uh, heroin, meth, uh, and sexual addictions, so pornography, hookups, masturbation, all of that is kind of my wheelhouse where I talk about that. And talking about addictions always means talking about trauma and always means talking about relationships in the family system. So I end up getting to talk to people about all of this stuff. Um, but I, I primarily I primarily work with men, um, usually in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, and uh, I also do a lot of focused work with uh, gender and sexual minorities, work with the, the LGBTQ plus community, um, and I always have. So that's what I do. And I have, a, I have my practice here in Gresham. I do individual counseling. I do group counseling. I do clinical supervision. And I have interns in my office. That's kind of fun and a little <laughs> intimidating, but <laughs> they, they call my boss. So they don't actually nice. call me boss. Oh, man, you should set that up. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's great. And then, so, yeah, Reese, I definitely wanted you to come and talk to us about addictions um, because I feel like with TCK experiences, especially where TCKs face a lot of adjustment and a lot of grief and loss and a lot of, uh, you know, just high levels of uh, daily stress, that kind of thing. Um, addictions and addictive related behaviors can pop up. And I've been in groups before where they've asked very openly and warmly, 
tell me about your tell me about your addictions and your addiction experience and your healing process and a lot of tck's in that instance will open up and share honestly and um there's a lot more than i would have maybe expected and so i want to talk about addictions with you um and i want to talk about this not because i think that all tck's are struggling with addiction or will necessarily struggle with addiction I just think that there are a lot of TCKs out there, and especially for those in the missions community, where religion is a big thing and there can be a lot of guilt and shame wrapped up in this issue. I want to just kind of bust this topic open and give people uh, give people an excuse to talk about what's going on in their lives and to uh, hopefully pursue a healthier, uh, yeah, a healthier pattern of behavior and a healthier way of living their lives. So for sure, and I love that you're talking about it and. Your, your words, you know, busting this open. One of the things that we notice with addictions is that addictions live in addiction. Addiction is all about pattern and it happens within a system. It happens within mm. your own, your own internal system of your, you know, your parts and especially within the family system. And that can be defined a, a, a lot of different ways, but there, there is this really strong theme and it's a, it's a negative, it's a harmful one where a lot of people with addictions, they come from families where it wasn't talked about or where it was covered up. And that's mm-hmm. where you get into enabling behavior and there's some codependent things to consider there too. But mm-hmm. um, addictions have their power in isolation and isolation is coming from not talking about it. So even just bringing it up to talk about, I, I'm excited that that's happening because yeah. it can be an uncomfortable topic, but you know, in this field, we don't have time to be hindered and encumbered by our own discomforts. We have to have to face these realities. Yeah, absolutely. So, Reese, I'll just start off with my first question, which is uh, maybe you've started to uh, tap into this a little bit, but where do addictions come from? And I feel like I feel like you know when I throw out the word addiction, when someone sees that on uh, perhaps on my web page or on the list of episodes they might cringe a little bit and be like, Ooh, addiction. That's a, that's a dark subject. I don't know if I want to go there. And besides like, I'm not using an illegal drug. I'm not addicted to an illegal drug. And so I don't struggle with addictions, but I feel like addictions and addictive behavior and addictive patterns, it's so much broader than just being outright addicted to an illegal drug. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about maybe where addictions come from and what that really looks like? Well, sure. I do like this stuff. So I would agree that the word addiction and its correlate, the word, the word, the term addict, they, they come with a lot of baggage and being, you know, you and me being in the field of mindfulness, uh, where mindfulness is our, our currency, word choice is important. So I have lately found it more useful to talk about compulsion. Okay. And here's a little bit why is thinking about, thinking about what's going on in the brain when you do these experiences, when you drink too much alcohol, when you smoke too much weed, when you smoke any weed, when you look at porn, when you gamble, when you eat excessive sugar in the evening, uh, the, or anytime, these experiences all have an effect and you do them for a reason mm-hmm. and you do them for the desired effect. So if I, so if I paint the scenario of here's, here's an individual who's repetitively and impulsively engaging in a behavior that they don't really want to do, um, but they, but they crave doing it. And when they do it, it 
temporarily relieves anxiety, but later causes more anxiety. And that they do it causes causes problems. Uh, and they don't want to do it, but they feel compelled to do it because they need to relieve that anxiety. Now, did I just describe alcoholism or did I describe obsessive compulsive disorder? Because essentially, those disorders there, they're tapping into the same, the, the same brain mechanisms and kind of tripping the same circuits. And we, we can make the argument that there, there's a thin and blurry line between addiction and compulsion, um, between our, our classic you know, substance use disorders in, as they're listed in the, in the DSM and an obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, not the personality disorder, the, the other one. Right. So I, I lately find it more, more precise to think about, think about compulsions and think about obsessions and think about preoccupations. Because they, I think they, they're just a little bit more specific, and you know, and they don't have quite the same baggage. Mm. I mean, there's there's baggage, there's stigma that goes with all of it. Mm-hmm. But all that to say, so where so where do these things come from, um, and just what is what is a compulsion in this sense? So 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 essentially, <laughs> essentially, it's very complicated, and there's a lot of ways, a lot of ways to look at it, and uh, a lot of there's a lot of frameworks for understanding what what addiction and compulsion are and a lot of them have value and something to offer and they all have some blind spots so if i had to pick one it would be that addiction is a stress response Mm. we are distressed we are stressed we're taxed we're overwhelmed we're fearful we're feeling something we don't want to feel and so we do something to feel different and if it's effective it's if it's highly dopaminergic if it triggers if it gives you a lot of dopamine a lot of that pleasure pleasure hormone your your brain tags it and says, "Hey, remember this. It was good. We want to do this again and again as often as we can." So, so addiction and compulsion are definitely stress response. That's a very strong component of it. Um, there is also a very strong case to be made for the disease of addiction or the disease of compulsion. Um, it's been called a, a disease of choice. I believe that's, um, mm. you know, if you've ever seen the, the, the DVD documentary Pleasure Unwoven by, by Kevin McCauley, um, he calls addiction a disease of choice. And mm. he'll go through step by step. Here's how, you know, the features of addiction, you know, precisely mirror the features of any other disease like, like diabetes. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And... I feel like it's important to to recognize this because, um, speaking hypothetically and thinking about what addiction is not, it's not fair to say that addiction is a moral issue, although morals are involved and get compromised. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair to say that addiction is a criminal issue, although it is true that addicted people do criminal things. And... It's not fair to say that addiction is just people making poor choices or being a poor character, although there is a type of choice component to it and the person's character is, is a factor in it. Um, it's, more, it's, more, it's more fair to recognize that you know, a person is made up of many parts. There's, mm-hmm. their, there's their physical self. There's their historic self, like their genetic code and their family lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, a person is made up of thoughts and emotions and um, cultural cultural elements and social factors, social stresses, and and, and spiritual components too, above all things. So, uh, two two models for what addiction are that that make a lot of sense. 
Uh, one is the diathesis stress theory that says a person who has the right predisposition to be addicted meets the right set of uh, external stressors and the stressors activate what was already predisposed to be there and then addiction happens. Um, that makes sense. Um, another very commonly used and more widely accepted model for addictions is the biopsychosocial model, or I could expand it to be the, the biopsychosocial spiritual model. And it's recognizing that a combination of biological factors, psychological factors, and social or environmental factors all collide to, uh, to cause an addiction. So, so going with this thought, I, I personally will reject the, the the term or the concept of addictive personality because that makes it seem like it's an, a thing inherent to a person that they didn't have any choice or control over and it just it's just who they are mm-hmm. uh, and saying oh I have an addictive personality is like saying oh I'm an addict and it's it, mm-hmm. it internalizes it to a deeper extent than I'm comfortable with mm-hmm. uh, prefer to think in terms of there are a variety of uh, risk factors that can affect whether a person will be addicted or not, um, as well as a variety of supportive factors that would prevent a person from becoming addicted in that way. Right. So if I can, um, you had talked about the biopsychosocial spiritual factors that contribute to addiction. Can you maybe like just uh, hit on some of those and like perhaps in generic terms or perhaps specifically whatever it may be, what are some of those factors that contribute to a person um, getting into a pattern of uh, a pattern of overwhelming compulsion or addiction or whatever it would be. Yeah. So thinking through some some risk factors in those different areas. So um, biological risk factor could be if there's a family history of, of substance yeah. abuse, yeah, uh, or of sexual abuse, or of financial abuse, um, or or of emotional abuse. That you know these things they they run in the families through mm-hmm. the miracles of genetics and epigenetics and what gets modeled. So there's that. Um, a person's physical health will will factor in. I mean, mm-hmm. if a person is not in great health, or if a person has injuries and pain that are causing distress, and they're seeking to to medicate that, that yeah. could lead them to seeking things that are soothing. Yeah, uh, thinking uh, psychologically, um, psychologically and socially. Uh, probably the biggest risk factor is whether or not it, it is attachment style. And I know you've had guests on the show talking about what attachment is. You know, mm-hmm. you have your secure attachment, your anxious, avoidant, disorganized attachment. Um, you know, if you ha- if your early if your early attachment figure was not emotionally present in a consistent, secure way, um, but rather absent or inconsistent, inconsistent or overwhelming or or terror terrifying, that's going to set you up to be vulnerable to a whole host of other things. Right. Similarly, you know, if you have trauma in childhood, you know, big T or little C, if you have a lot of disruptions, if you, um, if you have early exposure to, to drugs, to alcohol, to porn, to, to what, to whatever, um, that that's going to be a factor. Um, we, we do notice that um, factors like being of lower education, lower income level, those those factor in mm-hmm. as things. Um, not saying anything against any particular kind of person, but some people, their their environment doesn't lend them good supports for 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 doing for doing this well. Um, 
Man, just he- hearing some of those things that contribute to uh, addictions and addictive behavior, like talking about constant disruptions and like poor social support, poor ne- uh, network support, whatever, for uh, maintaining your health, um, even <laughs> having good health. Sometimes when thinking about TCKs in particular, they're traveling all the time, which means there's a lot of disruption. There's a lot of relational disruption. Um, they're under high stress and there is probably there may not be as strong of a supportive network around them in their uh, field of service overseas and uh, because they're traveling to a country that they're not accustomed to especially at first i would expect to see a higher a higher rate of health issues to go along with that so i feel like mm-hmm. there's a lot of things you're talking about that kind of scream out to me like yeah this is definitely TCKs and uh, overseas workers would definitely be subject to some of these things, and mm-hmm. I could definitely see how those would contribute to uh, running across addictions in uh, working overseas. Absolutely, and one of the other really major factors to consider is the family system and the the openness in that family system. Um, if it's a if it's a family where we can pretty freely, comfortably talk about our, our emotions, talk about our needs, talk about our vulnerabilities, and have that conversation greeted with with empathy, with concern, with care, compassion, support. Um, that's a highly supportive factor. And a kid growing up in an environment like that is probably a lot less vulnerable to addiction. He might try stuff or she might experiment with stuff, but it probably won't stick in the same way as, say, in a family where, um, and we could call it maybe a... a a shame culture family, a family where things don't get talked about. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that feeling. Uh, you know, boys don't cry. You know, girls keep a stiff upper lip. Um, you keep your troubles to yourself. You handle it on your own. You know, just take it to God and don't talk to us about it. Mm. You know, environments like that uh, are really ripe for creating addictions because, and I'm theorizing a little bit about, because I don't know what's inside every parent's head, but sometimes parents, families need to keep up an image of we've got our stuff together yeah we're in ministry we need to look a particular way we need to be the spiritual leaders in our community we have to have everything look good yeah and that can create pressure to push things into the shadows and the reality is that nobody has their stuff together uh so if and wounds happen stress happens and uh relationships get ruptured and strained and if those are not dealt with, they fester, they become wounds, they become resentments, they become bitterness. And you know, if these kids are not taught healthy ways to handle their emotions or feelings, yeah. like do this breathing technique, go for a jog, journal, pray in this way, talk to me, uh, that sort of thing, uh, they'll, they will find a way to get through their distress. And mm. kids are great at this. Kids are great at surviving traumatic situations Mm. they're not great at finding the healthiest ways to do that all by themselves Mm. and so when you know kid discover you know when a boy discovered a boy who doesn't get emotional nurture from his dad and maybe gets overwhelmed by his mom and doesn't have any friends uh discovers his dad's porn stash at age six um and discovers wow this helps me escape this helps me feel good um i i like this i'm gonna come back to this more or when the you know 11 year old girl who is her body's changing in a way she doesn't understand she's not able to talk about it she's been sexualized she's been you know maybe given you know societal role she's not comfortable with uh, she's just super stressed you know she discovers oh 
here's alcohol, here's cannabis, um, here's food that mm-hmm. um, that that makes me feel better and, and maybe maybe matches my narrative of myself. I'm going to come to this, you know, again and again and again, um, and that and that will happen. They'll they'll find these things and essentially bond with them because because the parents aren't available. Uh, and not to put all of the blame on the parents, it's, you know, the other siblings who aren't available or other people on the ministry team that aren't available or a cultural society, you know, peer group that isn't really emotionally available. Mm-hmm. Probably, and, and this is important to understand about addictions too, is that uh, not every, like not everybody who drinks alcohol is an alcoholic. Not everybody who smokes weed is a pothead. Uh, not everybody who looks at porn is a porn addict. Um, and, and not even everybody who does these things a lot has an addiction or a compulsion, um, because there's different phases, you know, you know, you know, young kids, especially they'll, they'll experiment. Um, you know, almost everybody in college has experimented with a lot of stuff once or twice. And for a yeah. lot of people, it's an experiment. It's mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Maybe it's terrifying, but they do it a few times and then realize, eh, that's not for me. I don't need it. It doesn't have a place of significance in my life. Mm. Um, and they can have that experience from a place of security because they have an internalized sense of competence. They have mm. an internalized sense that the world is kind of safe mm-hmm. or I can navigate it or I know I can get help from people when I need it. Um, that's secure attachment talking. Mm. Without that secure attachment, uh, kids grow up not knowing that the world can be safe and thinking the world is only dangerous and they don't know what they're capable of. They only see them, themselves as incompetent. They don't know what they're worth. They have a lot of low self-worth. And so for, for these kids, the, the object of addiction, the object of compulsion, it's not just a thing. It's, it's a relationship. It mm-hmm. has a function in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's the major difference between a, a compulsion or a dependency and just, oh, I'm trying this thing out, is when that alcohol, that weed, that porn, that gambling, that food, um, this is my lifeline to feeling okay. This is my primary means of getting through life. Um, when that is that is the case, um, that's when there's a real problem. And that's what takes a lot of work and a lot of support and a lot of new relationship experiences to really break free of. Right. And as you're talking, Reese, I'm kind of, I don't know, I kind of feel like you know, uh, addiction and compulsion can feel like a taboo topic and it can feel like, especially if it's, you know, especially if it's you that you're struggling with this issue, then you are, then you're a weak person giving into your weakness. That's how it can feel. That's how it can come across to yourself as you're explaining this to yourself or as you, as you're trying to grapple with like getting help or like talking about it with other people. It's like, oh, you're just a weak person giving to your weakness. But the way you're talking, Reese, it sounds like that's not the case, that it's not a weak person giving into weakness. It's um, someone who's gone through a lot of adversity and they're trying to they're trying to adapt and be resilient and survive and cope with the stress and the what you know trauma and the um, whatever it is that's contributed to uh, them having this sense of being overwhelmed and being in pain and being scared. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually yeah, it's very much it's I, I like how you how you put that. There's the stigma that, oh, you're a weak person giving into your weakness. When in reality, like you're saying, it's actually a very clever, resilient, adaptable person mm-hmm. who's doing what they can to survive. And yes, their method is problematic, highly <laughs> problematic. Yeah, right. Um, 
but that we we can also notice that you know you know people in active addiction they they are clever they are they develop a really unique skill set um granted they <laughs> they use it for evil but you know they they learn how to compartmentalize they learn how to organize they learn how to plan they learn how to I'm thinking about the, these people, the, these legendary, you know, cocaine addicts who, you know, they they maintain they're homeless, they're unemployed, but they they find three hundred dollars a day for for their drug. Mm-hmm. That takes skill. Yeah, that takes a lot of a lot of something. That if that same gumption were applied in the workplace, they would thrive. And many many people do. Many people come out of these acting out, these explosive acting out behaviors. And they they turn that energy back into work, back into exercise, back into you know back into their passions, and they they can do really well. Mm. Granted, they're they're just they're in the acting in half and still not completely healthy. But um, but there's a very thin line between obsession, compulsion, and passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, throwing all of yourself into that thing that you're meant to do, that thing that you're really good at. Um, there's a way that people in recovery can really access that in a really beautiful way with some guidance. Mm. What? No, we can't stop there. Oh, man. I know what you're thinking. We're in the middle of a conversation here, but it's running a little bit long, so I decided to cut it into two parts. We'll be running the second part next week and getting more into um, the healing process and what that looks like, so definitely stay tuned. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, and be sure to subscribe to the show, um, leave me a rating and review. And if you'd like to be a part of making the podcast happen in a very real way, think about becoming a financial partner of TCK Care, the podcast by going to tckcare.com slash give. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you for part two next week.